morning. Uh, this morning we're reading from Ezra 5 and 6. If you want to turn in your Bibles. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. At the same time, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bozani and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? They also asked them this, What are the names of the men who are building this building? But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. This is a copy of the letter that Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bozani and his associates, the governors who were in the province beyond the river, sent to Darius the king. They sent him a report in which was written as follows. To Darius the king, all peace, be it known to the king that we went to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God. It is being built with huge stones and timbers laid in the walls. This work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. Then we asked those elders and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? We also asked them their names for your information that we might write down the names of their leaders. And this was their reply to us. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylonia. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, Cyrus the king made a decree that this house of God should be rebuilt, and the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple that was in Jerusalem and brought in the temple of Babylon. These Cyrus the king took out of the temple of Babylon, and they were delivered to the one whose name was Sheshbazar, whom he had made governor. And he said to them, Take these vessels, go and put them in the temple that is in Jerusalem, and let the house of God be rebuilt on its site. Then this Sheshbazar came and laid the foundations of the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and from that time until now it has been in building and is not yet finished. Therefore, if it seems good to the king, let search be made in in the royal archives there in Babylon to see whether a decree was issued by Cyrus, the king, for the rebuilding of this house of God in Jerusalem. And let the king send us his pleasure in this matter. Then Darius, the king, made a decree, and search was made in Babylonia, in the house of the archives, where the documents were stored. And in Ekbatana, the citadel that is in the province of Media, a scroll was found on which this was written. A record in the first year of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem, let the house be rebuilt, the place where sacrifices were offered, and let its foundations be retained. Its height shall be 60 cubits, and its breadth 60 cubits, with three layers of great stones and one layer of timber. 
Let the cost be paid from the royal treasury, and also let the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that is in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its place. You shall put them in the house of God. Now, therefore, Tatnai, governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bozani, and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. Let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal avenue. The tribute of the province from beyond the river and whatever is needed, bulls, rams or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine or oil as the priests at Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also, I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of this house and shall be impaled on it, and his house shall be made a dunghill. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree that it be done with all diligence. Then, according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bozani, and their associates, did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Edo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel, and decree by, of Cyrus and Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God a hundred bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. On the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover, for the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests, and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel, who had returned from exile, and also by every one of them who had joined and separated himself from the uncleanliness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Ali. That was a, a very big reading for you and your debut uh, reading <laughs> as well. So thank you. You did a great job. 
Uh, keep your Bibles open there um, at Ezra 5 and 6, and uh, that'll be really helpful as we study it this morning. Um, now, there are a number of, of very famous buildings around the world today that remain unfinished. One of the most famous, uh, you've maybe had the opportunity to visit it, as I have, uh, is La Sagrada Familia in Barcelona. Um, it's an amazing cathedral with many towers and spires. Um, and when it's finished, it's going to go on to be the tallest cathedral in the world, actually. And now, would you believe it? The, be- uh, the, the building actually began uh, in 1882. And the reason it's taken so long um, is because there's been so many obstacles and delays along the way, which have caused the, the building work to either, either slow to a snail's pace or just to cease for a time. And one of those delays uh, was due to the death of its original creator, uh, Anthony Gaudi. He died in in 1926. He was hit by a tram, unfortunately. And the events during the Spanish Civil War, they also stopped things for a while. Uh, The the models, um, they were uh, smashed to pieces during the the Spanish Civil War, and the the building, the the plans for it were burnt. And so it took 16 years for them to actually piece together the fragments of the master model uh, so that they could start building again. There's been financial difficulties, there's been political problems, and all these things have caused this building to remain unfinished for almost 150 years now. But at long last, on the centenary of the death of its creator, um, La Sagrada Familia is expected to be finished in 2026. Now that's just uh, one example of a grand building project which at many times in its history has grown to a halt. And as we think about that, It's not just buildings, though, that we see that happen. There are times when it can seem like it happens with God's work. That might seem like a strange thing for me to say. You might think, how on earth could God's work stop? But when we think of that, I'm sure we can all have times come to mind when it appears like God's work has stopped. The work of the Lord in the life of some individuals, maybe. That friend who became a Christian and seemed so enthusiastic, who seemed to be growing in their faith, but now maybe it's not even that they've completely drifted away from Jesus or the church, it's just that they don't seem that interested anymore. They don't seem to be growing or that the enthusiasm has gone. Other things just are a priority now in their life. And it seems like the work that God started has now ground to a halt. Or it might be when we think of, of the work of God in some local churches. There was a, a time in the church when things seemed to be happening, when the services were, were full of people worshiping God. Christians were in the church and they were growing in their faith. Other people from outside were coming in and they were coming to faith. But now numbers are dwindling and the passion of that community just seems to have petered out. Or what about the work of of God in a particular country? Maybe there was a time when a nation had a real Christian heritage. There were lots of of churches. This was a nation that that sent many missionaries across the world. But now that country, Christianity is very much in decline. Churches are closing their doors. And the churches that are there are discouraged and weary and seem to be losing their trust in the Lord and his work. Or maybe more close to home, if we're honest, we might be aware of the work God is doing in our lives, feeling like it has grown to a halt. 
There's a lack of joy in our lives. We've lost that will to fight against temptation and sin. Maybe we can remember a time when we really felt God's presence near to us. We had a thriving prayer life. We enjoyed spending time in God's word, but now those things just don't seem to be there anymore. And we feel at a bit of a standstill in the Christian life. As we think about some of those situations and we feel the reality of them, perhaps it's easy to be discouraged. Maybe you're here this morning and as I say those things, it just brings those feelings of of being dejected, being worn down, wondering, you're you're wondering how, how can things ever change or get better? That's probably the feeling that God's people had as we left them last week at the end of chapter four. I'm not going to do a big overview because we don't have time to do that, as I've said last week as well. But God's people uh, had just started to rebuild the temple. They've come back to the land that God had promised to them. He's made the way for that to happen. They're doing the very thing in Jerusalem they were called to do. But now it's all just stopped. The work that had started is, is finished, it almost seems. Opposition from others in the land has risen up against them. People have made it their mission to discourage and frustrate and derail God's people in carrying out God's work. And it seems like they've succeeded. By the end of chapter four, the rebuilding work has stopped. And it doesn't just stop for a week or two, it stops for 17 years. 17 years, no one lifts a toe to rebuild the temple. And as the temple lies unfinished, it seems like the Lord's work has ceased. But as we finish chapters five and six this morning, that that reading that Ali read, closing out this series one, really, in a three-part series in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, I want us to be encouraged as we see that God's plans and purposes can never be stopped. God had made a covenant with his people. He promised that his temple would be rebuilt. He promised that their worship of him would be restored. That he once again would dwell in the midst of his people in the land that he had given to them. And Ezra 6 finishes with the fulfillment of those promises. God's people are faithful to his word and he prospers their work and restores their joy. And for us now here, we remember that God has made a covenant with us, his people. He's made promises to us in Jesus Christ. And Ezra 5 and 6, they show us that even when it appears like God's work in this world and in his church and even in our lives, when it appears like that work has grown to a halt, God's work will never be left unfinished. God will always finish what he started. He will always be faithful in keeping his promises which should give us hope. Hope for this world. That despite the brokenness that we see out there and that we experience, the suffering and the evil and the injustice that there is, God's promise is that there will be a day when Jesus Christ returns and makes all things new. It should give us hope for the church that despite our our weaknesses 
and our failings and our mistakes. Despite the opposition that the church faces in this day and in the days to come, no doubt, we can trust that Jesus will build his church and that even the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And it should give us hope for our lives too. Knowing, like Paul in Philippians 1, that when God begins a work in someone's life, he promises that he will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. When he returns, he just calls us to trust him. To trust what he is doing, to know that he is faithful in keeping his word, so that we then can be faithful in following him. Now, as we live waiting for that day when Jesus Christ returns again. So, before we get into Ezra 5 and 6, let me pray for us and ask for God's help, uh, and then we're going to get into his word. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes and our hearts to receive from you this morning, to see your glory, to see Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of all your promises to us. I pray our hearts would be stirred to praise you and worship you for the God that you are faithful in all of your ways. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, end of chapter four, as we've said already, the work on the temple has grown to a halt. God's people have returned to their homes. They're going about their, their daily business. It's almost like they've forgotten the reason why God brought them back to the land in the first place. But what we see at the start of chapter five is things get going again. And it's worth us asking that question, what has happened to turn things around? What's changed from chapters four to chapter five? We'll have a look at verses one and two, because right out of the gate we get the answer. Now the prophets... Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. What causes the work of rebuilding the temple to restart? It wasn't that the people woke up one morning and suddenly just had this new lease of life. They thought, you know, this, the temple, it, it needs to be finished. Let's get up and let's work. Let's go. They, they somehow conjured up this desire within themselves to finish what they had started. It wasn't even that the, the temple and the work that they were doing wasn't going to be costly or difficult anymore. That the opposition that had been around in chapter four, that it had somehow kind of just gone away. That's what we'll see here in chapter five even still. no. The work restarts because God takes the initiative. God speaks to his people. Do you see that? The prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, are sent by God to prophesy to the people, to deliver his word to them. Verse 2 says the prophets of God, they were with the people, supporting the people. It gives this idea of them being amongst the people being in their midst almost, continually working with them, continually speaking God's word to them, reminding them of what God has said, challenging them, encouraging them, strengthening them with God's word. And here's part of the prophecy in Haggai chapter two, which was kind of the heart of the message that God sent to his people. It's important that we get this. This is what God says to the people through Haggai. It's on the screen and I'll read it. 
He says, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? So he's talking about the old temple that was built by Solomon. How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts. Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. God reminds his people of the work he has called them to do. But more than that, he reminds them of who he is, the Lord of hosts. He reminds them of the glorious promises that he has made to them, to his forefathers back in Egypt. And he reminds them that in this work that he's called them to do, that he is with them. He will encourage them. He will empower them. He will see this work through to completion. God gets to work in the hearts of his people through his word. He stirs their hearts to trust him, to obey him, to work again for him. That's how the rebuilding work gets going. And it shouldn't really surprise us. Because how does, does, does the Lord do any of his work? How did he create all things from nothing? Genesis 1 tells us he, he did it by the power of his word. He spoke and all things came into being. Think about the, the church in the New Testament Churches that, that seem like if something drastic doesn't happen in the life of this church, that the work of the Lord is going to be brought, brought, brought to a grinding halt. Think of the church in Galatia or the church in Corinth. How are they restored? How are they rebuilt almost? God sends his word to them through the Apostle Paul. And for us, as, as we think of the work that God does in us, rebuilding our lives in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that work starts... And it continues through hearing and responding to God's word. 1 Timothy says that God's word is able to make us wise for salvation. His word is what reveals our sinfulness to us and our need of a savior. His word is what shows us his incredible riches and kindness towards us. His grace and his mercy to those who have walked away from him. His word, it draws us back. It shows us Jesus Christ, the one who comes to offer forgiveness and life to all who turn from sin to God. And his word helps us to trust him as we live this new spirit-empowered life in Jesus. When we think of the work God does in building his church, us, these living stones that, that 1 Peter talks about that are being built up in Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, all of this work that God does here amongst us, it starts and it continues through us hearing and responding to his word. Keeping his word at the very center of our lives together. Sitting under the preaching of his word every week. Opening his word and discussing it 
together in our MCs and in our core groups. That's how we're shaped and changed and directed as a church. And when we think of our, our city, this world even, and the building work that God is doing through us as his people, as we join him in the renewal of all things here in Belfast and beyond, that work starts and continues as we hear and respond to his word. As we live these gospel-shaped lives together, serving the poor, caring for the weak, the marginalized, the hurting, working for the good of the city, and holding out God's word to others, the truth of life, to encourage them to turn to Jesus and to find life in him just as we have. Maybe you're someone this morning who's here and you feel that, that the work God is doing in your life has grown to a halt. You feel like a, a shell of your former self, spiritually speaking. It feels in some ways like the scaffolding is up, but there's no work being done, and you desperately want that to change. I want to ask you a couple of questions, but I also want to give you an encouragement. Are you hearing God's word being taught regularly? And are you asking God to speak to you through his word? As, as you come on a Sunday as you hear his word opened and preached, as you read and you meditate on it yourself maybe during the week? Are there other people in your life who you know and trust to bring the truth of God's word to bear on your life? Hearing and responding to God's word is the way that God works in his people. It's the way his work starts. It's the way his work continues. It's the way his work will be completed in us. And here's the encouragement. Because do you see that, that God does not give up on his people here in the book of Ezra? For a long time, they've ignored God's word. They've ignored the work that he's called them to do. But God has not forgotten them. He graciously sends his word again to the people and he gives them a second chance. A chance to repent. A chance to turn back to him, to hear his word again and to trust him to carry out his purposes and plans. So we don't need to despair because there is a way to be revived and restored. There's a way for the Lord's work in your life to get moving again. And it's through hearing and responding to his word this morning. What we see next is that when God's people do hear and respond to his word in faith and obedience, as they get busy doing his work again, opposition comes. Opposition comes. This is what we've seen before that we'll see again here in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, it's not something that we're going to spend a lot of time thinking about this morning, but it's an important aspect of the storyline here in chapters 5 and 6. There's something that we can't miss between Ezra 4 and 5. Because nothing really has changed in the circumstances of God's people. Do you notice that? The reason the work stopped in chapter 4 is still there in chapter 5. There are still people in the land around them who do not want the temple to be rebuilt. And sure enough, as the work begins again, opposition rises up. Verse 3 the governor of the area, Tatanai and Shethar Bozanai and their associates, they come along with their clipboards, no doubt, and they say, who gave you permission to do this? Who said that you could start doing this work again? 
It's the same tactics that we've seen already in in chapter four. It's threatening behavior, intimidating behavior. They say, give us the names of you people who are doing this because we're going to report you. We're going to make sure that that the king hears about this. And so they, they send off this report to the king. They tell him what's going on in this letter that they write. And they ask him to do this kind of search in the royal archives to, to either verify or discount what these people have claimed in verse 13. That, that Cyrus, the previous king to Darius, that he had actually given them permission to rebuild. Now, like we said last week, when God's people obey his word and faithfully carry out his work in this world, opposition is the norm. It's to be expected. But do you see the difference this week? This time they don't stop. See that in verse 5? But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. And why didn't they stop this time? Well, it's because God's word gives his people the confidence to overcome opposition. God's word gives his people the confidence to overcome opposition. In fact, it's not even that the the work didn't stop this time. It's that the work is actually prospering, even in the face of opposition. Do you see that in verse 8? That's what the opposition actually say about the work, that it's prospering, that it's going really well. And here's the, the proof that God's word was really taking deep root in the lives of his people, that his word was changing them. And, and strengthening them to continue his work diligently, even in the face of difficulty. And isn't this true for us as God's people now? Often the proof that, that God's word is really gripping our hearts, that the roots have gone down deep. It's when we continue to be faithful to him, even when it is difficult, even when opposition comes our way, when we choose to be obedient to his word rather than being comfortable and compromising on our values or beliefs. When we choose to continue to speak about Jesus with our unbelieving friends, rather than being overcome with fear and staying quiet. That's when we know God's word has really gripped us and he is working in us by his word, in in us by his spirit, with his word. That's what we see here. When God is truly at work, he will do the work in his people even in the face of opposition. In fact, this chapter actually shows us that that God will work at times to use the opposition to bring about his plans and purposes, using it for the good of his people. That's what we see in most of chapter six. We're not gonna go through it in loads of detail, but, but what happens is Darius, he searches the archives as these men have suggested. And these men, they're, they're expecting Darius to find that, that these The Jews are lying about what Cyrus said. Uh, They are expecting them to to be punished, actually, because they've done this without the king's authorization. But in chapter 6, verse 1 to 5, Darius finds the decree made by King Cyrus. Uh, And so in verses 6 to 12, it's the response that he gives then to the opponents of God's people. He says in verse 6 and 7, Keep away. Let the work of this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and elders of the Jews rebuild the house of God on its site. Don't go near them. Don't impede them. And it gets worse for Tatanai and his men. The tables are just completely turned in them because they're now going to be the ones to pay for it all. 
there to supply God's people with whatever they need, money for the rebuilding, animal sacrifices for the animal for the sacrifices and the burnt offerings to God's people uh, to God whenever the people or the temple is finished, and wheat and salt and wine and, and everything else they need. And no one is allowed to obstruct what God's people are doing. In fact, the king makes a decree that if anyone does, verse 11, it's a great verse, a beam shall be pulled out of his house and he shall be impaled on it and his house shall be made a dunghill. What a punishment that is. See, what these men meant for evil, to hinder God's people in his work, God uses for good, for the good of his people, for the flourishing of his work. God's eye is on his people and he's making sure that his word continues to work in them and through them even in the face of opposition. Remember last week I told you about Andrew, a student in Scotland playing rugby for a university team and the opposition that he was facing at the start of of uni for being faithful to God and not taking part in some of the the kind of things that he was being asked to do and those initiations that goes on in rugby clubs. I told you that in the face of that, he, he was being given lots of uh, abuse and, and he was being mocked by his teammates. It actually affected even his chances to play in the team. But actually, there was one guy in that team who watched Andrew and the way he conducted himself throughout all of this, how he never seemed to complain about what was going on or say a bad word about anyone else, how he kept turning up to things, being there and present, even though the easy option would have probably just been to, to pack it all in. Uh, And in just the last few weeks, I I was chatting to Andrew and seeing how things were going, and he was telling me about the conversations around faith and and why he's continued to be there that he's been able to have with this guy have been amazing. See, when Satan intends things for evil, to hinder God's people and their work for the kingdom, God turns the tables. In the mysterious and strange ways that he often works, he uses that opposition at times, even for the good of his people and for the good of of his work. What do we see as we kind of get near to the finish here? God's word, it not only gives his people the confidence to kind of keep going in the face of opposition, but it gives his people the confidence to be sure of who they are and what they are doing. That's what we see towards the end of chapter five here. His word, it shapes their identity and their mission. They've been asked this question by their opponents who are you? What are your names? And their answer in verse 11 of chapter 5, it shows just how deeply the word of God has seeped into their hearts, how it's right at the core of their being. Verse 11, we are servants of the God of heaven and earth. We are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. Basically, what they do after that is they just recount the history of the people from Exodus really up until this point, including the the exile and how they came to return to the land. And you see what they say? It just shows their humble confidence. Humble humble confidence, not in themselves, but, but in God. Here's who we are, servants of the God of heaven and earth. And here is our purpose. We're here to do his work, to obey his word, to carry out his work, which he has given us to do. They know and they believe what God has said about them. They trust his word to them. They're sure of their identity and their mission as God's people. There are so many people in this world who are searching for their identity and their purpose in life, aren't there? 
So many people desperately trying to find out who they really are and why they're here on this earth. Searching for, for their purpose in their job, maybe. Searching for their identity and what their boss has to say about them. Searching on social media for validation about who they really are, what their purpose is in this world. They're looking for the answers within because they just don't seem to be able to find it anywhere else out there. The Bible says, if we truly want to know who we are and why we are here, then we will find the answers to that in the Bible and what God has to say about us, the God of heaven and earth. He is the one who made us. He is the one who loves us. He is the one who gives himself for us to make us his people and to make us a people who have a purpose, not just now on this earth, but forever in eternity, worshiping him. These people, they believe what the Lord says about them. They trust his word and it instills this confidence within them. What would it be like for us as God's people to get up tomorrow morning and to know who we really are? To know what God has for us to do here on this earth as his people. Having that humble confidence just as they do. Knowing that we are servants of the God of heaven and earth in all that we do. Whether that's in school. Whether that's at home as we look after our children. In work. As we socialize with our friends. We are serving the God of heaven and earth. That's who we are. Our, our work here has got incredible worth for his kingdom eternal value. As we prepare to land here this morning in Ezra chapter 6 and finish off this kind of first section of this book, look with me, verse 14 of chapter 6. Darius has sent his decree to Tatanai, Shethar, Bozani, and all their associates, letting them know that the work of the temple is to be left alone. They're not to go near it. They're actually to be the ones to fund it, to make sure that it's finished. And verse 14 says, And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Isn't it interesting in that verse? Who comes first? Whose decree was it first? God, his decree. Because he is the one who has set all things in motion. He is the one who is in charge. It's not these other kings who are setting the agenda. It's God through them. That's what we saw right from chapter 1. And verse 15 says, And this house was finished in the third day of the month of Adar, in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. They finish what they started. The temple does not remain unfinished. In fact, God finishes what he started in his people and through his people. In verse 16 to 18, they celebrate the dedication of the temple with great joy. It says in verse 19 to 22, they celebrate the Passover feast together, their most important kind of feast or festival in the whole of their calendar. And I don't want to just gloss over this at the end and kind of finish on this high note and say, you know, all things finished really well for God's people. Yes, this was a significant moment. They, they celebrated the temple having been rebuilt and they celebrated with the Passover. But what does that actually mean for us? Well, here's what all this shows us. Here's what we can learn from this now as God's people. The people here have been faithful in keeping God's word. But more importantly than that, 
God has been faithful in keeping his. They have faithfully obeyed God's commands. But more important, God has faithfully kept his word to them. This is why the temple was complete. If God hadn't initiated the work again, if he hadn't worked in the hearts of his people by his word, then nothing would have happened. If God hadn't worked in the hearts of these kings, like Cyrus, like Darius, the rest of the kings that we'll see as we follow, then nothing would have happened because these decrees, they paved the way for God's work to be done. God has been at work in all that has gone on. He has been pulling the strings. He has been faithful in keeping his promises. And do you know the Passover meal that they celebrate right at the end? It's looking back to that time in Exodus when God made a covenant with his people that he would rescue them, bring them out of the bondage and slavery that they were in in Egypt. And at that time, it's when the Passover was celebrated. The Passover lamb was, was slain, it was killed. And its blood was shed to atone for the sins of the people. God brought his people out of Egypt to the land that he had promised. And the Passover meal, it looked back and celebrated God's faithfulness in keeping his promises to rescue his people. For us now, we know that the Passover pointed forward to the greater exodus. When God delivered his people out of their slavery and bondage to sin through the death of his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. Jesus, the Lamb of God who came into the world, perfect, unblemished, innocent, but he was killed. His blood was shed. Why? To atone for the sins of his people, to make us clean, to make us right with God. And this morning, as we come to the table, the Passover feast, it culminates in Jesus' work on the cross, which we celebrate here as we come to the Lord's table. We reflect on God's faithfulness to us in keeping his promises, in keeping us his promises to forgive us from our sins, to, to make us right with him, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and to give us the righteousness of Jesus Christ through faith in him. We come to the table and we remember what God has done, just as the people did here in Ezra. We remember his promises fulfilled, but we also eat and we drink and we celebrate until Jesus Christ returns again. That's what Jesus said when he was with his disciples, when he had the last supper with them, that Passover meal. He said, eat and drink and remember the Lord's death until he comes. We do this today. As we come to the table, we come with joy knowing what God has done for us. We celebrate what he has promised to us and how all of his promises to us are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. This is a meal that's open to anyone who trusts in Jesus because the way back to God is open to anyone who puts their trust in Jesus Christ. And I want you to notice something right at the end here in verse 21. Look what it says about those who were celebrating the Passover feast. Verse 21, the Passover was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile, but also by everyone who had joined them and separated themselves from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. See, this meal is for God's people through faith in Jesus Christ, but this meal is, is open 
to all of us. It is through faith in Jesus. To anyone here this morning, even if you're someone who who has not yet trusted in Jesus, this meal could one day be for you, open to you. The invitation is there, but first the invitation is, is to come to Jesus, to trust in him, to experience the joy and the purpose of knowing Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian this morning, I pray that that in, in what this meal kind of signifies and symbolizes, that you will see Jesus Christ and what he has done for you, his body broken for you, his blood shed for you, to make the way for you to come back to God again, to experience life in him. If you're a Christian this morning, let's come to the table. Let's remember what the Lord has done. Let's celebrate his goodness to us. And let's eat and let's drink and let's sing praise to him. Let me pray for us now and then we're going to come to the Lord's table. Father God, we thank you for how your word reveals to us what you're really like. Lord, so often we can forget, forget your character, forget your goodness, forget, Lord, what you've done. to to display the love that you have for us, to demonstrate uh, just how gracious and kind you've been to us. Lord, we're so undeserving because we, like the people here, we've strayed from you. We've forgotten what you have actually said to us in your word. So many times we do that, Lord. We've sinned against you. But even in that, you're faithful to us, faithful in, in keeping your promises. And those promises, Lord, are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. As we come to Jesus this morning, as we remember what you've done for us in him, we know, Lord, that that we are welcomed back to you, that through Christ's body being broken for us and his blood shed for us, we can know you, we can worship you, we can enjoy being in your presence, just as these people did at the end of Ezra 6. Lord, I pray that you would renew and restore our joy today. If we are those maybe who have strayed from you, Lord, bring us back to you today through your word. Lord, I pray that through what I have said this morning, my weak and and, and feeble kind of efforts, Lord, to explain your word, I pray, Lord, that even in that, you can do your work. You can stir hearts to, to worship you once again, to come back to you again. Lord, I pray that you would do that. Lord, there may be some here this morning who don't yet know you, I pray that this morning the invitation that's offered to them to to come to to save in faith in Jesus Christ, Lord, that they would take hold of that. They would see that even if they've made mistakes and and walked away from you their whole lives, Lord, that you are still gracious to them. You still welcome them. Lord, as your people, as we reflect uh, on what Jesus Christ has done as we come to the table, I pray, Lord, that you would stir our hearts to praise you, that our joy would be restored, and that we would go from here, Lord, changed, changed to live for you, changed to tell others about you and your glory. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done.